We're in the midst of a series focused on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which reveals Jesus' vision for the good, the good life, the flourishing life. This is God's whole new way of being human. But despite what many people think, the Sermon on the Mount is not telling what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom or to build the kingdom of God by your own efforts, but rather it's telling you who you become by sheer grace when God's presence and power come into your life. Now, Jesus, of course, knows how religion can go bad. And so in contrast to many of the distortions of Christianity that you might encounter out there, Jesus lays out for us the real thing. Now, the passage that is before us today focuses on the theme of spirituality. And the very first word, the very first verse is beware. Beware. Jesus warns us against the danger of false or counterfeit forms of spirituality, and that's an important issue. One of the most talked about features of contemporary American life is the dramatic rise of the nuns. And by that, I don't mean the dramatic rise of the number of women running around wearing black habits. I'm not talking about the rise of the N-U-Ns. I'm talking about the rise of the N-O-N-E's, those who claim no religious affiliation. They are, they would say, none of the above. So apparently about 30% of U.S. adults now call themselves part of the nuns, those who have no religion, and you might be one of them. But that doesn't mean that they're all atheists or agnostics. No, many of those who say that they don't have a religious affiliation nevertheless say that they believe in God, so they don't have a problem with God, but what they really don't like, what they really don't like is what we would call organized religion. It's leaders and it's adherents. But I've got good news for you. If you have a problem with the way in which religion is often practiced in America today, well then, guess what? So it is Jesus. With an expert eye, Jesus reveals the marks of various forms of false spirituality so that we might be able to identify the real thing. He cares about this more than even we do. And in this particular passage, Jesus zeroes in on three particular spiritual practices, giving, praying, and fasting. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that we shouldn't do these things. In fact, he expects that we will. He says, when you, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. But he uses these practices to contrast what we could call, number one, pharisaical spirituality, and number two, pagan spirituality, with number three, true Christian spirituality. So we'll look at each of those in turn. Let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 6. You'll find our passage printed beginning on page 811 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 and 16 through 18. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Please pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that Jesus' word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first off, the Pharisees are not directly mentioned in this passage, but clearly those are the people that Jesus is describing. They were well known for their acts of charity towards the poor. They prayed at least three times a day. They fasted at least twice a week. And yet in verses 2, 5, and 16, Jesus refers to them as hypocrites. And that, of course, is one of the primary reasons why people reject Christianity today. People reject Christianity because of the hypocrisy of Christians. But let's be clear about what we mean by the word hypocrite. It's not hypocritical to make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Nobody lives up to their ultimate ideal. And that doesn't make you a hypocrite. The word hypocrite was actually taken from the world of the theater. So in ancient drama, actors didn't wear makeup, but they wore masks. And sometimes they would wear more than one mask, depending on whether or not they were playing more than one role in a particular production. So the hypocrite was an actor wearing a mask. And therefore, a hypocrite in a religious sense outwardly appears to be one thing, but in reality, there's something altogether different. But there's different kinds of hypocrites. Some people know that they're pretending to be something that they're not. And if you're that kind of hypocrite, it's easy to detect. But there's another form which is much more subtle, much more difficult to detect, and therefore much more dangerous. And this kind is not guilty of blatantly trying to deceive other people, but rather this kind of hypocrite is guilty of deceiving oneself. The mask is so good that you don't even realize that you're playing a role. The mask is so good that you fool even yourself. And that's the kind of hypocrite that Jesus has in mind. You might think that you're sincere, devout, committed to your faith. You might be commended for your generosity, for your prayer, for your discipline, and yet Jesus says, it's all just a show. 
So how do you know if you're a religious hypocrite? Well, the answer is, who are you trying to please? That's the question you have to ask yourself. You see, whether consciously or not, a hypocrite turns their spirituality into a performance. And therefore, there's a disconnect between what you do and why you do it. There's a disconnect between your actions and the motivations behind those actions. So rather than engaging God through your spiritual practice, a hypocrite simply plays to the crowd. It's all just an act to win the applause or the acclaim of other people or perhaps to simply congratulate oneself. And you can do this through your giving, through your praying, through your fasting. You can do it as you're leading a Bible study or volunteering to serve. And so how do you understand whether or not you've fallen into this trap? Jesus says, beware. Beware of the piety contest. Beware of trying to impress other people with your spirituality. Beware of trying to show off your religiosity. And why is this so spiritually damaging? Well, Jesus says, because if all you want is to win the applause of others, well, then that's all you're going to get. That's what Jesus means when he says, for they have received the reward. He actually uses a technical term that means the account has already been paid in full. There's nothing more coming due. So if all you want is for other people to be impressed with you, well, then that's all you're going to get. Sometimes the worst thing that God could do is just to give us what we want. So how do we avoid falling into this trap of hypocritical spirituality? Well, let me, let me speak personally for a minute. Let me just use myself as an example. In, in my role at the church, I often have to get up in front of people and talk. I have to deliver a message or I have to pray. And listen, this is not a performance. I'm not an entertainer. This is not a performance. And yet at the same time, I have to perform my duties. I mean, imagine if I showed up one Sunday and said, sorry, I didn't prepare a sermon this week. You would be a little bit concerned. And in fact, I witnessed something like that years ago. Ashley and I showed up at church one Sunday and the pastor got up, as he normally did, and said, I didn't prepare a sermon this week. I was watching basketball with my son last night. Now, that happens sometimes, but he should have just quit there, closed in prayer. But no, he proceeded to, to speak for 30 minutes, even though he hadn't prepared anything. It was a very painful experience. <laughs> so this isn't a performance, but I do have to perform my duties often in public not just on a weekly, but sometimes on a daily basis. I have to, to preach and to teach, to counsel and to lead, to guide. And when I'm performing my duties, it's very hard for me not to slip into a performance mentality. That's true of all of us. And so you begin to wonder, well, am I doing a good job? What do people think? Do people like me? Do they really like me? What do they really think? We become approval junkies. And I have to say that early in my ministry, this was a real issue for me because I, I derived my whole sense of self-worth self and value from my performance and specifically my performance in ministry. And it got so bad that at times I couldn't sleep the night before I had to give a talk and I couldn't sleep the night afterwards because I'd be playing it back in my mind wondering what I actually said and how it came out and what did people think of it all. 
And my wife, Ashley, tried to encourage me initially by telling me, well, Jason, you shouldn't worry about this. You always do a good job. Just let it rest. But I always found a way to discount Ashley's words because no matter what she said, I thought to myself, well, she's my wife. She has to be nice to me. So I, I, I discounted her words, and then Ashley realized she needed to try a different tactic. So she got a little more tough. She, she practiced a little tough love, and she said, you know, Jason, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't believe the gospel. And what she meant by that was not that I wasn't a Christian. She wasn't saying I wasn't a Christian, but what she meant was you're not applying the gospel to yourself. And here was the irony. Week after week, I was getting up in front of people to tell them that God relates to us on the basis of grace rather than merit. And yet I wasn't applying that truth to myself. I was trying to justify my existence through my job. And what was so twisted about it is that I was deriving my identity and self-worth through my spiritual performance. And I was turning it into an act. And so Ashley was right. I had to remind myself of the truths of the gospel, that no matter how well or how poorly I performed, God's view of me in Jesus Christ was fixed. Jesus is my righteousness, not my job. And after a while, that actually started to work. I listened to what Ashley was saying, and I, I applied that to my heart and my life, and that's when things really began to change so that I actually began to feel and experience freedom from that performance mindset. So the question is, how do we resist that performance mindset and avoid falling into the trap of hypocritical spirituality? Well, Jesus provides the key when he says, let your actions be done in secret where only God can see. But what exactly does that mean? How do you do everything in secret where only God can see? And how do you square that with what Jesus says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven? Well, we need to realize that Jesus is addressing two different issues. In light of our cowardice and our tendency to hide our faith, Jesus says we have to let it shine so that others do see our good we are good works, and they can discover the reality of who God is for themselves. But on the other hand, in light of our pride and our propensity to want to show off, Jesus tells us to perform our acts of spirituality in secret where only God can see. But how do we actually practice that? Does that mean that we can never pray in public? How would you preach in secret? Well, the question is ultimately a question of audience. We have to learn to live before what the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called the audience of one. We have to learn to live before the audience of one. The key is to learn to see that there's no one else in the audience except for one person, and he's the only one that matters. The Apostle Paul dealt with something similar when he was ministering in the city of Corinth, people unfairly judged him and criticized him for his work. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes that ultimately in his role, he's called to be a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And if our primary calling is to be a servant of Jesus, then the thing that's most important is that we prove to be faithful. 
And so in response to this unfair criticism that he's receiving, Paul writes, with me, it is a very small thing. It's a very small thing to be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. And for those of us who are our own worst critics, these are the words that we need to hear. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't even matter what I think of myself. All that really matters is what God thinks of me. I have to live before the audience of one. And that is what I slowly over time began to learn to apply to my own heart. And that became incredibly freeing. In fact, the moments when I feel most free, especially when I'm preaching a sermon like this one, the moments when I feel most free are when I imagine that none of you are here. Not to be offensive, but I imagine that none of you are here. And I imagine that there's only one person in the congregation. And all I want is to think and do and say the things that will please him rather than pleasing others. Now, that's hard to do. It doesn't happen all the time. But when it does, that's what makes all the difference. And sometimes, sometimes I can even almost hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So Jesus reveals that pharisaical spirituality is a counterfeit form because it's nothing more than a hypocritical performance. But that's not the only way that religion can go bad because Jesus also addresses what we could call pagan spirituality. In verse 7, he says, Don't, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do because they think that they will be heard for their many words. So the ancient Greeks assumed that if they used just the right words in just the right way, just the right amount of times, that they could get the attention of the gods in order to get whatever they want. Now, we don't see too much of that today, but we have our own forms of pagan spirituality. And what ancient and modern paganism has in common is that it treats religion as merely a means to an end. So if pharisaical spirituality is hypocritical, pagan spirituality is instrumental. You're just using it to get whatever it is that you really want. About 10 years ago, the New York Times columnist Ross Douthat wrote a book entitled Bad Religion. And he makes an interesting argument. People are often trying to figure out, well, what's going on with religion in America today? Is religious faith on the rise as the secular critics fear? Or is religious faith in decline as the religious conservatives lament? And Ross Douthat argues the answer is, both. So on the one hand, we see a decline in organized religion. People are abandoning organized religion, but that doesn't mean that they're embracing atheism. No, instead we see a growth, a dramatic growth in various forms of do-it-yourself spirituality. But what all these various forms of do-it-yourself spirituality have in common is that they treat religion merely as a means to some other end. And that ulterior goal usually is financial prosperity, psychological well-being, or political power. So it's not all that different from ancient paganism. We use religion to get whatever it is that we think we really want. So here's how Douthat puts it in his book. He says, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. 
It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. The United States remains a deeply religious country and most Americans are still drawing water, some water from the Christian well. But a growing number are inventing their own versions of what Christianity means, abandoning the nuances of traditional theology in favor of religions that stroke their egos and indulge or even celebrate their worst impulses. These faiths speak from many pulpits, conservative and liberal, political and pop cultural, traditionally religious and fashionably spiritual. And many of their preachers call themselves Christians or claim a Christian warrant but they are increasingly offering distortions of traditional Christianity, not the real thing. For all of its piety and fervor, today's United States needs to be recognized for what it really is, not a Christian country, but a nation of heretics. We're a nation of heretics who have abandoned traditional Christian faith in order to embrace various forms of do-it-yourself spirituality. Now, Douthat identifies three forms of bad religion. One he calls the prosperity gospel, the second he calls therapeutic spirituality, and the third is partisan politics. So first, he talks about the prosperity gospel, also known as, as the health and wealth gospel. And the basic idea there is that it's always God's will for us to experience both physical and financial well-being. So proponents of the prosperity gospel say that if you have enough faith and if you think positively, and don't forget this, if you make donations to religious causes, well then, God will make your life go well as a sign of his favor. And so if you pray hard enough, you'll get that new job, that new car, or that new house. But you see here, the orthodox belief that balances the reality that God wants to bless you with the reality of human suffering in a fallen world is replaced with the much simpler and much sunnier view that God basically just wants everybody to be rich. And so if you're not rich, or if you experience setbacks or disappointments or failure or suffering in your life, well then guess what? You've got no one else to blame except yourself. You just didn't have enough faith, apparently. The second form of bad religion he calls therapeutic spirituality or what the sociologist Christian Smith would call moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now let me break down those terms. This is a do-it-yourself kind of spirituality that is moralistic, meaning people believe that God blesses those who live their life well and if you are a good person then God will take you to heaven when you die. The therapeutic part means that God basically just wants you to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And the deism is not like 19th century deism. It's an updated contemporary form which believes that God is there to help you solve your problems, but otherwise he doesn't really get involved or interfere in your life. So moralistic therapeutic deism transforms God into a kind of divine butler or a cosmic therapist. God's always there on hand to help you with your problems as soon as you ring the bell. And he wants to make you feel good about yourself, but otherwise he's going to leave you alone. 
Now, Orthodox Christianity holds that every human being is unique and special and imbued with infinite value because we're created in the image of God, and yet at the very same time, we're corrupted by human sin. And for that reason, the self must be treated with dignity and respect, but at the same time, the self must be denied and disciplined at times. But that's not the case with therapeutic spirituality. No, the prophets of self-fulfillment, the gurus of self-love tell you that the self, our self, reigns supreme, which means that the God you really worship is nothing other than the God of yourself. You worship your own ego, or perhaps you worship your own libido. But then the third form of bad religion is simply partisan politics, and this isn't limited to any one part of the political spectrum. We see this on the left, the right, and the center. Orthodox Christianity leaves plenty of room for lesser loves and loyalties. You can be a faithful follower of Jesus and a good citizen and a loyal patriot. But for an increasing number of people today, politics is their religion. Politics is their God, whether it's of the populist or the progressive variety. See, the populist mistake is to say that the ultimate promise that God has made is not the new Jerusalem, but America. So we, we make this category mistake. We assume that America is supposed to be the city on a hill, when in fact it's Jesus' church is a city on a hill. And the progressive mistake is to equate progressive values with God's coming kingdom, as if they're one and the same. And so both mistakes lead us to either perpetuate myths of some kind of pristine religious past, or to fantasize about some imaginary utopian future. But either way, we reduce everything that God is doing in the world to partisan politics and power grabs. So do you see what all three of these forms of pseudo-spirituality have in common? They're instrumental. They use religion merely as a means to some other worldly goal. The God you really worship is not the God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. No, the God you really worship is the God of money or the God of pleasure or the God of power. So pharisaical spirituality is hypocritical. Pagan spirituality is instrumental. But both suffer from the same fundamental underlying problem. And you know what it is? Both forms of false spirituality fail to recognize God as our heavenly father. Your spirituality will be unreal if you don't have a real relationship with God as your heavenly father. And that's why Jesus repeatedly refers to God as your father in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it so often we may fail to notice, we may fail to realize how unique and special this is. Now, for some, this is a problem because if God is anything like your earthly father, well, then you don't want to have anything to do with God. So for many people, the only experience of a father we've known might have been an experience of absence or neglect or indifference 
or possibly even cruelty and abuse. And if God is like that, well, then I don't want to have anything to do with God. That was true for Michael Foucault, the French philosopher. His life's work was focused on the evils of authority, and he began with the first authority figure in his life, who was his dad. Michael Foucault's father was a surgeon, and he was worried that his son might become weak, cowardly, or unmanly. So he decided that he was going to do whatever he could to help toughen up his son, including forcing his son to witness a gruesome amputation. Now, we should have nothing but empathy and compassion for people who grow up with fathers like that. But we must not make the mistake of projecting our experience of a human father onto God. God is not some kind of supercharged version of our own dad. But rather, God the Father represents the ideal of what a father should be. So if we can conceive of a bad father, we should be able to imagine a good one. So imagine a father who is strong and powerful and yet fair and just and kind and loving and warm and generous. That is who God as our Heavenly Father has revealed himself to be. But others have an altogether different problem. They make the opposite mistake. They take the fatherhood of God for granted. They assume that it's automatic. Well, aren't we automatically God's children because God is our creator? But no, it's not automatic. The scriptures do refer to us as God's offspring because he created us. And the scriptures refer to God as the father of the nation of Israel. But to be able to know God as your heavenly father is a distinct privilege of the Christian. You can't get this anywhere else. Do you realize that no one in ancient Israel, no one in the Old Testament ever referred to the creator God as father? No one would have thought of doing that. It was sacrilegious. It just wasn't done. No one would call God father. Well, no one except for Jesus. Jesus appears on the scene and and this is the primary way in which he refers to God and the way in which he teaches us to refer to God. He tells us to call him our father. No one would have dared to have spoken in that way. But to know the God of the universe as your heavenly father is the distinct privilege of the Christian. And Jesus not only called God father, he called him Abba which is an Aramaic word, which is hard to translate, which is why it's usually left in the Aramaic in our English Bibles. Abba basically means papa, dada. It it was the intimate way in which a child would refer to their dad. And just think about the significance of that. There's lots of people in the world who can call me pastor, reverend, Mr. Harris. Lots of people call me Jason. There are only four people in the universe, though, who can crawl into my lap and call me daddy. And Jesus is saying that's the kind of relationship, that's the kind of intimacy that our Heavenly Father wants to have with us. The theologian J.I. Packer once wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This is the heart of it all. To be able to melt into your heavenly father's arms is true Christian spirituality. That is the real deal. And there's nothing better than this. That is the ultimate reward. The greatest thing that God could give us is himself. You know, centuries ago, Augustine said, it's so easy for us to want to get things from God rather than wanting God himself. As if the gifts could ever be better than the giver. He asks us to imagine a man who summons up the courage to buy a diamond ring and then drop down on one knee to propose to the woman he loves. And imagine that in that moment, she responds by saying, I don't really want to be married to you, but I will keep the diamond. Thank you very much. Now that's crazy. That's preposterous. That's offensive. No one would ever do that. And yet that's what we do to God all the time. We say, well, we'll take the gift. We'll take the diamond, but we don't want to have anything to do with you. But how could the gift ever be preferable to the giver? The ultimate gift that we could receive is the gift of God himself. So do you know God, not only as the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, but as your heavenly father, as your Abba? And how do we get that? Well, this is what Jesus came to do for us. Do you realize that in the Gospels, every time Jesus prays, he prays to God as his father, as his Abba father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's trying to find out, is there some way that I can accomplish God's mission without having to go through the way of the cross? Even there, he prays to his Abba father, please, if there's some other way, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. There's only one place where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father in prayer. Do you know where it is? It's on the cross. When Jesus quotes Psalm 22, and there he doesn't cry out to his Abba, Father. There he simply says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you see, on the cross, Jesus loses his relationship with his heavenly father so that you might gain one. Jesus is temporarily forsaken on the cross so that you might be adopted. He becomes sin with our sin so that we might become righteous with his righteousness. He loses it all so that we might gain it all. And so now we can know God as our Abba, our Father. And that is the greatest gift that he has to give. There's no greater gift that God could give us than the gift of himself. And so now receive your adoption. Know God as your heavenly father. And give, pray, fast, live before your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Because the ultimate reward he has to give us is the gift of himself and that is the secret that is the clue that is the key to true spirituality let me pray for us father we acknowledge 
that there are so many forms of bad religion out there, distortions of the real thing, pseudo-spiritualities. But we pray that you would protect us from falling prey to a hypocritical spirituality that is nothing more than a performance and protect us from those various forms of pagan spirituality that are instrumental because they treat religion merely as a means to some other worldly end. But instead, help us to know you as our Heavenly Father, our Abba, to melt in your arms, knowing that you love us and care for us because of what you've accomplished for us through, your, through the life, the death, the resurrection of your Son. Help us to take our deepest delight in knowing and loving you, being known and loved by you, because that is the ultimate reward. There is no greater gift that you could give than the gift of yourself. So help us to cherish that gift and be transformed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.